I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. X-Men 92. Today, Sharon and I are talking about the classic X-Men animated series that began in 92 and ran for four good seasons, and then a fifth that is a pile of garbage. With the revival on the way, we wanted to go back and reevaluate that first season. We didn't want to make it like a, let's watch all of it and then talk about it all too much for one show. This series gets held up and mentioned alongside Batman, the animated series, in terms of quality. And in my head, the two do not compare. In my head, before we started watching, this was part, but by no means all, of the X-Men that I started consuming ravenously around this era. I watched the show, but I also read a huge amount of the comics. So this was just after Chris Claremont had finished his run that had stretched all the way back to Uncanny X-Men 19 the follow-up to Len Wein and Dave Cockrum's giant-sized X-Men in 1975. That comic was the one that changed up the team from the flagging 12-year-old version of itself that was originally created by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. So the short of it was, the original 1963 team was Cyclops, Beast, Iceman, Angel and Marvel Girl, aka Jean Grey painfully white and middle American. If the MCU introduces us to this original team and they're all like they were on the comic page, they'd unfucked up. Brand new 1975 team written by Chris Claremont now, we got African Storm, Russian Colossus, German Nightcrawler, Irish Banshee, a brief turn from Native American Thunderbird who immediately died, and most importantly, Canadian Wolverine, who Sharon said to uh, Willow last night that Wolverines are these horrible little badger creatures that will attack things way, way bigger than them. Appropriate since Wolverine first turned up leaping at the Hulk with his knives outstretched. And they smell bad. And apparently their fur does not freeze up when it gets wet. My fur is too good. They're very good at surviving in extremely cold climates. The Dark Phoenix saga was the shot in the arm that the series... It began, by the way, uh, in like the 70s. I think it culminated practically the month I was born. It's so weird. I, I went back and went... What's the uh, uh, month for uh, August of 1980? What, what, what uh, X-Men issue was that? And it's Cyclops holding the dead, red-suited phoenix in his arms and going, Aah! which was paid homage to in uh, uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths with um, Superman doing that with Supergirl. Now, originally it was just the Phoenix saga, beginning with all new, all different X-Men 101, written by Chris Claremont, 
penciled by Dave Cockrum in October 1976. That ran for eight issues, ending on December 1977, but then resumed in 1980. Everyone thinks that this just went all the way through and that it was Dark Phoenix. Phoenix Saga first, Dark Phoenix Saga three years later, January 1980, ran for nine issues, which actually means that Cyclops going one was the penultimate issue the actual final issue was September 1980, Uncanny X-Men number 137, again written by Claremont with the assistance of John Byrne. So during this successful decade of the 80s, the team changed again with writing from John Byrne, who also wrote on Superman, uh, introducing Jewish kid Kitty Pride, later Sprite, and then Shadowcat. She had difficulty choosing a name much like Jean. Southern Belle Rogue, British psychic Psylocke, who would later body swap with a Japanese ninja lady whom every artist was obsessed with the ass of. Longshot, a six-fingered alien gladiator from Mojo World, Mallrat Jubilee, and most importantly for the 1990s, aside from Wolverine, Raging Cajun Gambit. It's weird now to say Gambit was hot stuff. In 2022, it's like, what's a Gambit? Most kids don't know. Yep. 2022, this episode has been banked for a long time. Those of us who had early crushes on him, mm -hmm. back of the queue. And then, three things took that series even higher. One was the massive new interest in the work of superstar artists like Todd McFarlane on Spider-Man. That, that was huge in the 90s, thanks in no small part to the introduction of Venom. And Spidey was huge as well in the 90s, thanks in no small part to his own animated series with Black Shack and Hookers with, and Venom as well. Venom was a huge reason why Spider-Man was suddenly, oh, we're interested in you now. But for the X-Men, that artist was Jim Lee. We could and probably should do a whole other episode on Image Comics, which is what happens when a load of superstar artists go, I'm going to get my own Marvel with Blackjack and Hookers. And they did. Yes, they did. There was a, I mean, there were so many X-Men copycats. So many super teams with the dude who had like uh, either sharp claws or was like a, a beast man or had like liquid metal or a cyborg arm. It was Terminator and it was X-Men. They just crammed those two together over and over. But it was because of the popularity of both of those things. The irony being that the 1984 film The Terminator bears an uncanny plot similarity with the 1981 Uncanny X-Men story by Claremont and Byrne days of future past. Now in a huge move, the existing late 80s team that Jim had been drawing recombined with the original quintet, so that's the 60s team, and then they redivided into two new teams, Gold Team, who were covered in the ongoing Uncanny X-Men book. So the numbers continued, like number one of Uncanny X-Men was the one published in 1963, but this was still that numbering. You couldn't imagine that these days because volumes are much shorter now. They, yeah. they wanted to keep the continuity going. I, I suspect this is what you're about to talk about, but around this time I was reading Episode 300 and some of the Uncanny X-Men. Mm -hmm. Episodes 40 some of the X-Men. Uh, and episodes 12 and some of the British reprints of old X-Men stories, whilst also picking up as many related titles as I could find at yeah. car boot sales and charity shops. Uh, I'm looking at it right now on Comixology. Uh, Uncanny X-Men 1963 to 2011. That's an insane run. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so uh, it would have been... Uh, Uncanny X-Men 281 was where they divided off into the gold team. But then there was also Blue Team, who were the focus of a brand new book simply entitled X-Men. And issue one was the best-selling single floppy comic of all time. Like, you put it up against maybe sales of Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns, and it'd be like, eh, but as for single floppy issues. And bearing in mind this was the 90s, the, the decade of chromium variant covers. And of course, it was up against the death of Superman from DC, who originally published that in a black bag. We could talk about how the death of Superman killed death in comics, and I think we kind of did. But this extra success gave way to the evolution of the comics as the bubble began to expand, using the growing roster of mutants and splintering the team off into different groups beyond just blue and gold, each of whom had their own monthly book. X-Factor was the original team, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Iceman, etc. And that introduced Apocalypse, that was a Chris Claremont book. But later on, when the blue-gold divide happened, it wound up as a government-connected mutant task squad headed up by Cyclops' brother Alex. Then there was Excalibur that was a British team supported by Nightcrawler and Shadowcat who left the X-Men to go and live in a lighthouse in England. It's going to be so damp. And then there was the New Mutants, a bunch of wayward teens. So that goes back to the original energy of the series. And it's like, you know, oh, you feel uncomfortable and somewhat excluded from society. That's because you're a mutant, kids. That had wild swing and tone shifts, though, because it went from ridiculously silly to intensely brooding and gothic. Chris Claremont again. And they ended up becoming X-Force, which is a guerrilla army run by Cable. Nathan Dayspring Summers, the future flung son of Scott Summers, and a clone of Jean Grey named Madeline Pryor. Don't ask. Don't ask. Eventually, <laughs> there was a 90s teen team called Generation X, tutored by Banshee and White Queen. Wolverine and Cable got their own monthly books, and I read a lot of them throughout my teenage years. This is when Marvel were like, what if we did a crossover? And you had to buy all eight books that month, and then all eight books the next month, and then the next month, and then the next month. It was called Age of Apocalypse, and it was one of my, the first series I read. I really want to do a show on Age of Apocalypse. I don't know how. It would get so nerdy and obscure that people would be like, I mean, okay. But it's, it's a weird place to start. Like, I, I've been reading X-Men for a, a while, but uh, this was like 1994. So uh, the, the cartoon had already been out for a few years and, and this was, like, everything changes in X-Men Apocalypse. So good guys are now bad guys, bad guys are now good guys. And it's, it's not a one-to-one, -one, but like, it's a, it's a dark, it's an alternate uh, Hill Valley scenario where Biff Apocalypse has now taken over. <laughs> Um, and it, it actually stemmed from an episode of this show, uh, The uh, Worth of One Man, in season four, which, uh, like, the, the people who came up with Edge of Apocalypse had access to this planned show and then started planning out this big crossover. There was also Onslaught, Operation Zero Tolerance. It just went on and on. And, and to a degree, you can see what happens in comics, the bloat of that, and then when they become too big for themselves, happening in other media. Mm, yeah. 
yes. Also, it was very difficult to actually stay on track with all of this. If you lived in the UK, yeah. and getting your comic deliveries consistently was really freaking hard. Yeah. If you lived in a little one-horse town like Thursk, and the only place you could get them was your newsagents, yeah. that was going to be tough. And they had hard. to order them in for you, and frequently yeah. forgot. But this was around the era, the, the mid-90s, I started um, uh, going to East Croydon from where I lived, and just buying comics at the Forbidden Planet that was there. I know. <laughs> I was I was very lucky I'd go to London and the massive Forbidden Planet that was there, but uh, yeah. Uh, Bob Chipman said nowadays, comic stores are toy shops that sell pamphlets that might end up becoming adaptations later on. <laughs> They're the uh, hotbed of ideas, the growing chamber for Marvel to, to go, do you like this Hulk? He's fabulous. This is a totally different thing, by the way, but what, what even is that now? What exists now as a physical space where geeks can get together to geek out about geek stuff? Forbidden Planet still exists, there's one in Nottingham. Yeah, but people don't hang out there. I don't, but a games workshop then. They, they go there, they talk about the little miniatures, and they have campaigns. Anyway, but then there's the third thing, which this is kind of leading on to. Merchandising, where the real money from the comic is made. <laughs> I first found out about the X-Men because they weren't huge in the UK. We, did, we didn't get like X-Men books on our shelves. I had the Beano, the Dandy, the Beza, Wizard and Chips. Transformers and Ghostbusters got their own comics, but yeah. they were like, and, and Ninja Turtles got like Archie comics as well, but they were, British comics are big, more like A4 sized rather than the classic American little box thing. And um, so we, we, they were almost more like, uh, Reader's Digests, like collecting Crazy collections of a couple. They were a yeah. bit more pricey than American books, but like, you'd get a few stories. Comics were, um, especially comics that were particularly targeted at kids, tended to be a collection of comic strips. So mm. you would maybe get a page or two of a story, and then so you like get Marmaduke a page and Fred or two Bassett. of another story. Yeah. Some like that, but like I used to read Mandy and Bunty, and they were proper oh God, we're showing our girls' age, yeah. adventure story type things. But again, you would only get little snippets of them, and then you'd have to get the next week's one to follow I the series. Bunty had passed out a living memory. Oh, it has now. <laughs> Bring back Bunty. Anyway, Mandy was my preferred one. When I was at school, I this was when I got into X Men comics. Mm. Around this time, I was about thirteen or fourteen and there were comic geeks at my school, but they were into DC. DC, you've told me this. And they used to talk oh, men. she likes X-Men. And mock me Meow. for being into the X-Men. So there you go, this whole thing about, oh, fandoms these days are all like dumping on each other. No, no they were shit. it happened back then. And it was also, it was Sega versus Nintendo. It was like, oh, he's only got a Mega Drive that doesn't have Mario Kart. Meow! It was that, it sucked. Uh. Can I come round to your house? You have SNES. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to go round to my friend Angela's to play mm. on her Game Boy. And they tried doing it the other way around. Do you remember that line in uh, The Lost World, Jurassic Park 2? She doesn't even have Sega. Nobody ever said that. <laughs> Maybe not in that voice in the UK. Well, we had a master system. Yeah. So yeah, I first found about out about the X-Men, because I knew about Spidey from when I was very tiny. There was Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, the, the show is simply entitled Spider-Man that came out the same year, um, and that was now is that's now called Spider-Man 3000, and I knew about the Hulk. That's a, That was about it. The I, I, I'd seen like 
Thor on stickers and I'd seen like Captain America here and there. Oh, I remember when I bought at a jumble sale an annual of the Fantastic Four. I think I may have mentioned this before with four Kirby era stories where it's like this alien comes down to Earth and starts trashing the joint. And then by the end, uh, Reed's like, wait, wait, wait. It's just a kid. And we've got introduced him to his alien parents. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. And it's like, ah, see, it was just a kid. Different perspective. And just these four issues of the, the FF made me go, I really like this Marvel world. But I'd not really gotten into what would become my... Like, I was really into X-Men in the 90s. Which is why the 2000 movie was such a fucking disappointment to me. Because far from going, see, Dad, see? It's a mature take on this comic book thing. I was like, what do you want, yellow spandex? Yes, I would like yellow spandex, please. And it took a long time for... I mean, obviously, Spider-Man, the, the Raimi one, but that was a that was an unusual take because everyone else was like, we're dark and brooding and Daredevil, but also Spider-Man. I, I did. I had time for the X Men, the early two thousands X Men. Initially, I think that the shine has worn off considerably over the years. Yeah, yeah. and obviously, yeah, Hugh Jackman is a treasure, and uh, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen lent it a hell of a lot of gravity. So yeah, I found about, out about the X Men because of the video games releasing on the Mega Drive and the Super Nintendo. Marvel made a massive ongoing deal that we still feel the echoes of today. Yep, Sharon's got her head in her hand, she knows what's coming, with Toy Biz. Headed up by a man named... Anyone? Avi Arad. Fuck you, Avi! He, look, he kept Marvel alive. I know! I know! Not like this. Not like this. (laughs) His name was on the most recent Morbius film. So, like, Avi Arad still got his fingers in the Spider-Man pie. He basically, he stuck with Spidey. Like, he, he's still part of that particular creative team. He had to. He got covered in web fluid. Ew. Um, but, but yeah, ultimately, they, they struck a deal uh, for a, a multimedia way of, of getting Marvel out to the kids in, uh, in a more concerted effort. The early, early 60s was, like, that sort of... Friendly Neighbourhood Spider-Man. Like, that that was the funkiest version of a cartoon of what followed on from a bunch of really lo-fi, low-tech kind of comic strips with a bit of narration to them, and they're just very creaky by today's standards. And while there had been shows, this was something else, because this was... Uh, a, a sequence of animated shows that existed in semi-continuity with each other and went on for multiple seasons each whilst the shelves of Toys R Us and KB Toys and the malls everywhere in the 90s were flooded with action figures of pretty much every single Marvel hero and villain. If you like action figure collecting now, the those toys eventually when they were trying to appeal to a, the the same market of of boys who had grown uh, you know and into their 20s and had more money to spare they became marvel legends like the later uh, spider-man animated series figures included superposable spider-man that became the first of the marvel legends figures so i'm looking right now at a marvel legend of uh, uh, captain carter who actually has a lineage even though it's hasbro now not toy biz dating all the way back to these uh, x-men spider-man fantastic four hulk silver surfer figures it was in effect the mcu media and merch empire mark one this 
X-Men series, 92, was the first... It was not called 92 at the time, but it's just a good shorthand way of saying it. It's a good shorthand way of reminding me that I was a lot older when I saw it than I thought I was. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, I totally saw this when I was like seven or eight. A little kid. No. Yeah. No. I was very definitely a teenager. Yeah, so I I would have been like uh, uh, 13 or 14 by the time it actually hit Britain and we got to actually see it in any particular amounts. And so at that age, you can come in and talk about a cartoon that you saw, but all the other kids are talking about Saved by the Bell. You know that they they, they want the grown-up stuff, like say by the bell, not the uh, DC kids stuff. At my school, yeah. apparently. Um, so it, it was it was tough to find the right crowd to to connect with at that age. But it, the irony is, being a teenager, growing with growing pains, is ideal for watching an X Men cartoon. It also appears. Weirdly, uh, to be my hurdle for relationships. Are you into the X Men? Yes. Excellent, you're in. Excellent. <laughs> so, yeah, the X Men series was the first to hit the screens, and they had 29 years, just count them, of existing comic continuity behind them. A lot of stories. And they very deliberately adapted lots of those stories rather than just going, I'm going to do my own thing. The way that X-Men Evolution was very much like writing new X-Men stories. Mm. Which makes sense because ultimately this covered a huge amount of the Claremont run of the book and and re- recreated them in more bite-sized form. Except for the Dark Phoenix saga, which went on for most of uh, season three. Better version, though. Yep, better version. You could say better version about a lot of things in this cartoon now that we've seen it. But yeah, they used Jim Lee's art and the costume designs from X-Men issue one, that blue team book, to boil down a rapidly expanding roster into just eight core characters and the oversight of Charles Xavier. It seems bonkers now by today's standards that it was just like, no, no, it's just these eight we don't introduce anyone new and keep them, and we don't lose any of them. I mean, that's crazy. When you look at the way that Justice League went from having just its seven, then they lost one, then they gained two dozen more. And, of course, the oversight of Charles Xavier. I suppose you could call Eric another major core recurring character. There were a lot who came back repeatedly, but yeah. I suppose that the, the core eight, Charles and Eric. But it was less Charles and Eric than the second generation of X-Men films, the period pieces, would have you... But in fact, there's a lot about the X-Men films that it was only a bit of. Wolverine's Juice, for example. It is amazing how little interest there is throughout season one in Wolverine's Juice. It barely gets brought up. But then when you start watching the films, everyone's after his juice. They just want to suck it out of him. Do you know what, though? That this version of Wolverine, I feel like if anybody came after his juice, they would be dead before they hit the floor. Oh, my God. He'd threaten them with death before they came even the the slightest amount close to him. It's like, I'm going to kill you in six different ways. One, two, three. Can you guess what the other three are? Anyway. I know what you're thinking, punk. Question is, can I get Wolverine before he turns me into shish kebab with those claws? Bump up. Seeing as how these claws are adamantium, the strongest metal known, and can slice through vanadium steel like a hot knife through butter, buddy. You gotta ask yourself, do I feel lucky? Come on, move it. We're missing dinner. Hey, ten woodsman. I'm sending you back to Oz in pieces. Lady, you picked the wrong girl to adopt. 
I don't care about which spirit ladies do what to which Cajuns. I'm here to stop a wedding. Where's that blasted salami? I can smell it. Ah, all it needs is slicing. While you're at it, fix one for me. Oh, ho, ho. looks like you've been having fun without me. Are you sure this is where they've taken her, Wolverine? The nose knows, tough guy. I don't make mistakes about Gene. I hope you're into <sighs> recycling. Guess you found the body. Go on in. The water's fine. Psych has his problems, but he don't smell like a Morlock. Run all you like, lady. I like to hunt. I could make a couple of women real sad right now. This kid's crying. Do something. So I just deliberately dumped an insane amount of tangentially connected and technically irrelevant detail on you. That's like, I didn't have to say everything I just said for the past 20 minutes or so. But it's to illustrate the context that this show was created within. If you look at how much they had on their plate, how many masters they had to please, and the restrictions of what they could and couldn't say in a kid's cartoon on network TV in the early 90s, plus the tail end of Turtle Mania, do not forget that. The Turtles were the big thing that had come before this. They ran from 87 to about this era when they started petering out, and then the third Turtles movie just slammed that nail in the coffin. Even though the cartoon ran for a lot longer, the, the turtle mania was beginning to ebb as kids aged out of it, and as they became teenage. Ironically, teenage, yes. Mutant, yes. Ninja, sometimes. Turtles, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, but the, the Ninja Turtles made the word mutant something to popular culture that was very different from what it meant in this mythology. The odds were high that X-Men 92 was going to peter out and disappoint. But it didn't. And now that we've seen it again, and in fact, we've we got to the end and we're like, should we watch season two and just, uh, just keep going? I'm not sure about season five. I think we will just for the hell of it. But the, them all being on Disney Plus makes it real easy to just watch through. Like I, We've had them at least three seasons of them on DVD for years, but just like, oh, I've got to change the DVD and what episode is what in and da 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 Having them all there is really helpful. And having a bunch of other interconnected shows around there is really helpful. That is one of the good things about the all-streaming future. There's caveats, but it means that anyone listening to this can check out this show if they want to, if they've got a Disney Plus subscription. And Disney want everyone to have one. So now we can articulate what people saw in this beyond the earworm of an intro tune. I hadn't thought about the the following on from Turtle Mania, but honestly, I think you might be onto something there. Mm -hmm. Like... If you didn't know the X-Men already, and there will be people who came to the, the show aware of the comics already. Mm. I didn't. The show got me into the comics. Yeah. But the if you were aware of the Turtles, and frankly, how could you? You couldn't not, not be. be. Their faces were everywhere. Absolutely. That meant you didn't really need mutant explaining to you. But the framing of it of... This is what a mutant really is. Mm. Makes it feel like something slightly special and grown up. This ain't your mama's Ninja Turtles. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So this actually began uh, three years before 
1992, uh, in 1989 with Pride of the X-Men. No place to hide, no place to run, no place to run. The mutant aid, the mutant aid has now begun. We don't know a huge amount about the production of this. Apparently Marvel were making a Robocop cartoon, which was not a huge success. Okay, it, there was the 87 movie, they, they did the Robocop series, and he was trying to stop vandals, and it's like, you, you really gonna send Robocop after yeah, vandals? This, this was the era of kids' cartoons being made of hideously inappropriate yeah. properties that were not kids' properties. The Rambo one. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Beetlejuice cartoon. Yes, this pervert, now best friends with a little girl. And that um, Jason Voorhees cartoon was not appropriate for kids. The Camp Crystal Lake one? That's not real. No, it's not real. <laughs> but I did convince Taylor Nova once that they did make a kids cartoon out of Friday the 13th. <laughs> Briefly, briefly. They, they were like, Is, wait a second. Did somebody make a mock-up of it? Because I can visualise an animated frame or two of Jason. Well, that'd be like, we got to stop those poachers from getting the Camp Crystal Lake deer. I'm going to call Jason. And then they press the thing. And then he picks them up and throws them in the water. It's, all, it's very wholesome fun. Anyway, <laughs> that's right, gang. we got to recycle. <laughs> and I might be just thinking of Casey Jones in his fucking mask. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Pride of the X-Men was a one-off pilot that they released on VHS, and it was kind of a, if this, if people like this and respond well to it, then we'll do a, a, a big ongoing show of it. And you can see it on YouTube, that it's P-R-Y-D-E, Kitty Pride of the X-Men, and uh, if you ever played the Konami arcade game brawler of X-Men, you'll go, oh, that's what the designs are from, because they lifted them directly from this. Storm wasn't dressed like this in the comics. She was a punk at this point. She had a massive white Mohican and like a, a, a leather vest. She looked rad, but here she's returned to her princess of an African tribe look. Yeah, and this definitely and had a scepter for some reason. Goes back to the Claremont era. There's a early Claremont era. Yeah, there, there was a Kitty Pride. Welcome to the X Men. We hope you, we hope survive, you survive the yeah. experience, which this is clearly yeah. pulling directly from. And. Uh, it, it, Kitty originally doesn't like Nightcrawler and at the end after 22 minutes she she's like oh actually I really do like you because he turned out to be brave even though he's big and blue and freakish and Wolverine in his <laughs> in his brown costume is Australian but here's the thing He's not the last Australian, Hugh Jackman. He wasn't even the, the first, first Australian no! Wolverine. Oh my God, what, where from and how? In like his origin story makes it very clear he comes from Canada. He's called Wolverine. Oi, I'm Wolverine, I am. If he was from Australia, he'd be called something like Koala. The Dingo. No, no, get away from me. Kitty, it's okay. You're safe now. Then it's all been real. Oh, of course it's all been real. Get with it. The X-Men don't have room for whiny brats. Just who are you calling whiny? I'll show you. I'll... Hold it, Kitty. Wolverine may not be Mr. Sunshine, but he isn't your enemy. 
That's right. Magneto's the enemy. Magneto? Professor X? Where is he? Is he all right? I... Yes, Kitty. I'm fine. Professor! Professor! Oh, I'm so happy to see you. Spider-Man and his amazing friends, the X-Men, had a brief debut episode, and Wolverine, for no reason, was Australian there. Honestly, on screen, he's been Australian more, more than, than he's been, been Canadian. Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thank goodness that they were like, oh yes, Canada, in this show, because otherwise his heritage would just have been lost. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, it, if you watch it on YouTube, there's good, there's obviously bad, it's it's cringy, it's very like G.I. Joe era, like the, the theme tune is X-Men saving the day. And it's that kind of animation as well. It has a strange relationship with uh, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, but at the same time, especially in that intro sequence, the actual like leaping around motion of it is really dynamic and, and like there's some nice shading in there. It looks better than a lot of 90s cartoons made in America. All of those ones that We Hate Movies do for Animation Damnation, where the animation is flat as fuck, like the Mortal Kombat cartoon, the Street Fighter cartoon, just all of this garbage churned out to kids. It looks better than that. It has kind of an anime look to it. The problem with this is that there's 22 minutes to get an introduction story going, and this is a movie's worth of action all in one go, to the point where the swap between Act 1 and Act 2 makes, made me feel like I'd missed a chunk because it's like Kitty gets introduced to the X-Men in the danger room and then Stan Lee rushes us forward to the next part and go because obviously there was a commercial break there originally and it's like and then they gotta go to Asteroid M to stop Magneto from throwing an asteroid into the in the world and killing all the humans and it's like whoa 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 that's not Magneto is it? but then yeah it seems like Magneto wants to destroy the earth and then him and his mutants will be able to repopulate. So let's just look at his plan. He's got Juggernaut, who isn't a mutant. He's got White Queen, okay. He's got Pyro, who can control fire. And he's got Toad. What's the long-term plan, Mags? He's done it again, hasn't he? It's the, I'm going to repopulate the Earth with one woman, and you know Emma Frost wouldn't let any of those guys Oh, God, no. Maybe Magneto, if he was nice. Which he's not. And she was bored. Which she's not. She's keeping herself entertained mm. doing weird shit to people. Yeah. The only reason she's not just taken over the whole group herself is because he's always got a hat on. Ah, uh, yes. But yeah, it's it's not terrible. It's it's very kind of like, gosh and darn it and um, like, you know, we, we've, we've got to get this stuff done. And it actually... It, it shares some similarities with the X-Men number one arc, which was uh, actually about them going up to Asteroid M and taking on Magneto. Because at the time, Eric had just gone, I am so sick to death of you humans. I'm going to take over the uh, these these missiles. We are going to start a new... I'm going to start my own island up in space. You come nowhere near us or I'll throw missiles at you. It was better written in that regard. <laughs> this was much more like genocide, entire world destruction, it, crazy. Yeah, and, and also not specifically all that magnetic. <clears throat> no, the, the stakes got so high so quickly it was difficult to keep up. And I think one of the things that really put me off... Aside from Wolvie. Aside from Wolvie. The, one of the key differences between this and how the, the X-Men 92 show progressed is the complete lack of anything approaching level 
levity, even though there is stuff going on that should be freaking hilarious because it's just silly. Yeah. But everybody is taking everything so seriously. And Kitty herself, as our POV character, yeah. is so earnest. There's nothing wrong with her. But she's like, I'm going to space and I'm going to save the world. Kid, you are 13. Stand down. <laughs> and the the... Even Diana from Dungeons and Dragons would be like, I don't know about this, guys. Absolutely, but and and that's that's fine. But it made it felt so unreal and unrelatable. Mm. And somehow, one of the major strengths of the of the ninety two show is that, in spite of the fact that everybody is a mutant and has weird explodey hands powers and the craziest fucking costumes you ever did see, bizarre accents that even to this day I cannot explain. I especially like it when they meet people who are wearing costumes that appeared in comics for a reason then and there, yeah, but have it no makes reason to no wear them sense now. Now, yeah, exactly. And when Gambit goes back to meet his buddies, for example, I'm like, why is everyone, everyone dressed like it's Mardi Gras? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, it is New Orleans, it, so it well, should, like, if it's not Mardi Gras in the swamp all day and every day, is it? <laughs> it's wet. What can I say? Um, but yeah, so in spite of all of that, the show felt very relatable for reasons that we are going to discuss. But Pride of the X-Men had none of that. Yeah. I mean, not none of it, but it, it felt heavy on the action and heavy on the impulse to keep moving, but light on the... Let's stop. Let's think. This is actually how it... For a start, your lead character of Kitty Pride, we don't start with her. We we get to her after Magneto gets broken out of his, his metal prison. And so we're not really with Kitty. And because as soon as she meets all of these people, she's like, oh my God, they're so weird and creepy and freaky. It's very similar to what happens with Jubilee in the first episode. Yeah. But it doesn't have the focus no, of that. No, it doesn't. In fact, no, I'll tell you what it is. The 92 series, you know that thing in The Simpsons where they said... Okay, how many of you kids would like Itchy and Scratchy to deal with real life problems like the ones you face every day? <laughs> And who would like to see them do just the opposite? Getting into far-out situations involving robots and magic powers. So you want a realistic, down-to-earth show that's completely off the wall and swarming with magic robots. You should win things by watching. And the kids are all like, both, yes, both, yes, both, yeah, both. all. The 92 series Swarming with magic had robots. all, both, everything. That's true, actually. It did have, it had the domestic and it had the uh, sci-fi. Yes. And they took their time as well. Mm. Like, the, the, the first season, I was surprised. At how I've, I've been asking for years for them to do an X-Men film where it's about the, the mutants are persecuted and people hate them and are... Pitchforks. Pitchforks. And uh, holding up placards saying... What was the, the, the message that uh, you hated? The, the, or no, that you no, no, loved no. that it was in, included there? Yeah, on the... There's a politician... Graydon Creed? A podium. I can't remember who it is. Um, but it says on the front of the podium, do you know what your children are? Yeah. Which is obviously a, 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 a variation on do you know where your children are, which is an early thing in the 90s. of a, In E.T., all the kids are out in, all the time on bikes. Mm. And then after, do you know where your children are, the 90s became, come back inside, I've got to protect you. Mm -hmm. There's so many dangers out there. And X-Men actually kind of plays into that. The outside is dangerous, specifically for mutants. They are loathed 
and feared, they, that whole, you know, the world that hates and fears us thing, they run with that for all 13 episodes of this first season. They do not relent and they do not shy away from showing the slippery slope towards Nazi internment camps. Like, they say fucking prison camps where they'd be terminated. Oh, you mean death camps. Right, cool, okay. Like, they're not making light of it. They are saying, this is it. This is where it goes. And I think Jack Kirby was still alive at this point and would just have nodded along and going, yep, that's what I was saying. The opening episode has mutant registration acts discussed yeah. and the and uh, jubilee is turned into the the mutant registration organization by her, by own, her own foster, foster parents yeah today the downtown area was rocked by another outbreak of violence the fact that the perpetrator is believed to be a mutant has fueled current anti-mutant hysteria now growing nationwide though one witness said only one isolated big hairy she's one of them martha she needs help but how could you register her with that Mutant control agency as if she were some sort of criminal. The agency isn't a prison, Martha. It's an outreach program to help these unfortunate people. It's for her own good. You know I love her. But what will happen to her now? I don't know. Let's just hope the neighbors never find out our beautiful Jubilee's a mutant. They'd never understand it. Why is this happening to me? I used to be a normal kid. It's not my fault! Yeah, we begin with just this mall rat jubilee, sort of, uh, uh, she runs away from home to go shopping. And again, this is, like, this makes it very much a product of its time. I'm going to the mall. And it's like, nowadays kids will be like, I'm going to my room where I will be on, on my, my iPad. iPad. <laughs> or phone. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, she's in the mall just trying to do this, that, or the other. A bunch of plainclothes X-Men are wandering around that she keeps bumping into, which is a really neat way of getting her to meet them before she goes to the mansion rather than during the, her going to the mansion. Obviously, they get her to the mansion because they're there. And then, effectively, it's the Terminator, but the Terminator's massive. And that's a really good way to start a cartoon for kids. Like, it's scary, but it's also really exciting because the Terminator is a compelling narrative of this big metal thing, in this case a Sentinel, wants to kill you. And the X-Men know about the Sentinels, but only a bit at this stage. We find out a lot more about this program through them. So this fucking terrible machine's tearing its way through the mall, smashing the place up, trying to just get Jubilee. And it's like, in any kind of reality, this is a debacle. People die and they have to retire the Sentinels program. Yes. This is Ed 209 going, you have two seconds to put down the gun. This is somebody called a paramedic. But in the X-Men universe, it's like, ah, Sentinels are working well. Exactly what we hoped for. <laughs> Complete and utter chaos and all the people are frightened, whether mutant or human. They're only going after mutants and the property damage. I, the, there is an essential double standard insofar as clearly mutants are, are, are manifesting powers around the world. They keep cutting to newsreels of people were like with their hands on fire going, oh, and it's like, look, your child could be a mutant. And people are scared of their own children. But there's not all that much carnage caused by them. People are not being hurt and killed by the mutants, but the Sentinels are fucking trashing the joint. Now that seems unrealistic. It's almost like there'd be some kind of, some kind of force who were very violent for no good reason and, and, and were protecting you from uh, what we're told are criminals by killing innocent people, left, right, and center. I'd, we were watching this for, we, we, we ate the whole thing in two days. And there were several times when Sharon was like, how are you seeing the future? 
Which is depressing. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I'm not the only person who picked up on that, by the way. There was, uh, at the very least, there was a YouTube episode that... Um, uh, YouTube piece that somebody did about the everything Omega Red. the X Men did right. No, or no, the Omega, the Omega Red, Red episode. The Omega Red episode is about a, uh, a ghost of the former Soviet Union coming back to uh, restore this Iron Empire by reclaiming all the lands that are, are said to belong to Mother Russia, and Sharon just sat there with her head in her hands. <laughs> Arkady Rossovich. Mm. Who knew? Yeah. Indeed. So yeah, the initial premise is there's these big hunter-killer robots going after mutants. They never did that in the films, ever. Like, they, they showed a Sentinel in the Danger Room program in film three, and then they made the unveiling of the Sentinel program the, uh, the, the point of um, Days of Future Past. Mm. But it was never a case of just, like, on the street, a kid gets menaced by a Sentinel or chased by something like that. That it, they don't become aware of life. It's always a threat in the it's just, it's a threat in the seventies, and then in the uh, in the far flung future of their Days of Future Past um, adaptation, the Sentinels are sort of like these uh, humanoid sized shifting creatures. Nimrod. Nimrod. Kind of, yeah. This really had an impact clearly on me because I was, I, I, whenever I think, how could they do an MCU X Men? I'm like, we'll start with this straight away. Children, be, teenage kids being chased by fucking Terminators. And you don't even need to make the Sentinels huge. That's the thing. Like, it all of, like, save that for a master mold. Mm. Just make them Terminators. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Just dudes who have, like, metallic bits on them. What this setup does is it immediately orients your sympathies with the people who are being pursued. Because here's the thing. It's disproportionate. If these kids were the terrifying threats to society that you keep saying they are, would they not be blowing up the big sentinels that are trying to kill them? Well, the X-Men have a good go. Either way, Jubilee's power is she can kind of make fireworks come out of her hands. Mm. Like, they'll they'll make a big bright uh, light and they'll uh, you, you won't be able to see for a bit and they'll make a popping sound and it's kind of like, it's a distraction thing. But I, lo I love how Jubilee throughout the early run uh, of her appearance in the comic is like, I am, I am next to these alpha class mutants. Don't even get me started on the over 9,000 classifications on these things. But I'm next to these atom bomb people. And all I can do is this. That's a perfect character for us to start with. A lot of people didn't like Jubilee. They're crazy because, like, there's nothing to not like about her. Plus, she's Asian-American. Representation matters. We need that. I don't know how she could be a mall rat now, though. <laughs> doesn't doesn't work. Doesn't make sense. They introduced her in the films, and we've I've lamented this in the past. She's the same age in, in the year 2000 as she is in 1990. In, in the later follow-up, and it's like just Simon Kinberg waving at the alternate timeline that's been created. And it's like, yeah, okay, that makes perfect sense, even though th things happened before that divert convergence. Things happened before that divide, which means that it wouldn't have affected it, and you just don't care, do you, Simon? Anyway. We know it doesn't. Lest we forget the parting shot that was Dark Phoenix, his second go at this story. <laughs> It's entirely focused on Scott giving this speech 
again, inverted commas, about how she did a thing and it hurt somebody, but she's still our friend. She's still Jean. Okay, first off, we didn't know who Jean was before. These kids don't know who Jean is. This doesn't mean a great deal to them. I'm sure she taught them particle physics. But what? This is so amazing. It has literally just happened. Now, I know she's a mutant, but there's still processes that you have to go through before you have a funeral for somebody. Deaths have to be registered. Doctors have to be consulted. Yeah. You know? If you're a creepy Heaven's Gate-looking motherfucker, you can bury as many children as you want on your land. If you have to go (laughs) have the funeral before you come in and tell everybody that the person you just buried is dead... She's still wanted it's by Interpol. It's happening too fast. <laughs> it's happening way too fast. Where the fuck is Charles? Where the fuck is the person who's supposed to be explaining to these children, some of whom are very young, all of whom are mutants? Okay. Some of whom girl, might... It, they may explode. They, exactly. Exactly. These kids are going to be sat there, and I can guarantee you, looking at the percentages, at least four of the people sitting on that stairway are thinking shit if that could happen to her that could happen to me my mutant power could go crazy i might explode and start killing people everyone around me might start exploding and killing people oh my god how am i supposed to cope with this We narrowly escaped having a Slimer-style little buddy. Like we had, fi- like this was a signifier that we were now out of that particular era of well, we've got to have a Slimer, you know, a little cute thing that everyone like, like Uni or. Um, it, it was right there in Pride of the X-Men. I know. That's why I say we narrowly squeaked it. It was Lockheed, who was like a little dragon and friends with Pity, Kitty, Pity Pride. Kitty Pride, who actually does make an appearance as a glove puppet in that New Mutants movie yeah. that uh, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy's character of magic uh, uses to be horribly passive-aggressive and racist with. Mm. That was a bungled film. So Jubilee is is just like I'm just a kid. Why am I? Why are they trying to kill me? She, I think she passes out after the Sentinel nearly kills her, but the X Men see it off and destroy it, and uh, wakes up in the X Mansion because it's like she's a mutant and we've got to abduct her for her own safety. It's fine. It's fine. Basically, like it, it should have been a case of uh, we need to bring her round and. Um, and, and ask her if she can come with us or something. And well, then a bunch of sentinels come down. It's like, we haven't got time to ask her. We haven't got time for her to come around. We've got to go. Yeah, at this stage, it's if she wasn't a mutant, we'd take her to the hospital. However, if we take her to the hospital, they're just going to hand her over to them. And put her in an internment camp. The next character to really talk about is Cathal J. Dodd's Wolverine. After a while, this kind of character became a parody of itself. Mr. Furious in uh, Mystery Men is, uh, that's a 1999, like, end of the decade send-up of Wolverine. That's that's who Ben Stiller was playing. Well, I guess the lone wolf rides in a pack of one. So it's very difficult to just put your finger on this and say this is a perfect comic performance of Wolverine, especially as... After 1999, there was the 2000 performance of uh, Wolverine by Hugh Jackman, who took the character in a whole new direction. They, they, they made him tall and stoic and like a samurai. And, you know, he was angry, but he kept it held in all the time. And he did, 
didn't exactly threat like he threatened people a bit in that first film, but he calmed the fuck down off of that and only started to threaten people who were actually genuinely dangerous. This Wolverine is angry at everything, threatens everyone with death and mutilation if they breathe anywhere near him. He's insane. He's like a hairball with spikes. It's like literally nobody. Wolverine, who wants to get cut? How dare you do that? <laughs> you shouldn't have come in here, absolutely nobody. <laughs> Gonna poke those eyes out. Yeah. It's it's particularly lovely that Capcom recruited the voice actors of these characters for their fighting games because I've heard him say, Let's go, Bub. Drill Claw, Tornado Claw, Berserker Barrage, ah! Rookie more than I've seen any X-Men cartoon. So, like, that version of Wolverine is so cemented in my head as this was the living culmination of the version of Wolvie that I discovered as a kid. And the tiny, like, hairy little runt. And as time went on, as I understand it, he got a bit less aggressive in terms, just just to regular people. He doesn't keep, like, popping his claws out at a four-year-old child for looking at him Mm. funny. Yeah. Well, in part, that's because there are several episodes, not all of them, Mm. and it doesn't fall into the trap of becoming besotted with one particular character and putting all of its focus Mm. on that person. Except for Scott, who gets no screen time. Well, that's true. He's just a stick in the mud. I think the reason people don't like Scott is because... because of this show. show. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the there are a handful of episodes that focus on Wolverine's past and him processing shit he's been through. Yeah. So it would not make sense for the character to have dealt with some of that mm. and still carry on being the same aggressive. It wouldn't have worked with the tone of this show for him to be like quiet and brooding. Like the the version of him that is played by Steve Blum in uh, Wolverine and the X-Men, that forgotten like late 2000s, early 2010s uh, one season show, which is really good and I really recommend in many ways, in many presentation ways in terms of vocal performance and complexity of new type of story. It's better than X-Men 92. But I don't want to diminish all of the achievements of X-Men 92 by just going, well, this is better. Mm. But Steve Blum's version of Wolverine is very much the, the stoic samurai and the quiet. And he's having say, to be a leader as well, rather than... That's yeah. obviously the one that uh, Jackman draws on yeah. more. Well, no, uh, they're drawing on Jackman at this point. Jackman have been doing oh, this for 10 years. Sorry. Um, right. Who's the redhead? The telepath I told you about. You'll soon meet her, along with the others. Looking forward to it. In the meantime, this is Scott Summers. Nice to meet you. Park that in the garage for me, okay, sport? I believe they call doing this thing with your voice vocal fry. It's always served me well. Possibly because I'm the best I am at what I do, and what I do ain't pretty. Also, they're going out of their way to not do the Claremont run, because as far as the production team were concerned, X-Men 92 had already done all of those Claremont stories, so they didn't have to. They could now look at what had been done in the interim 10-15 years. And they were in fact gearing up to do Age of Apocalypse for season 2, but it got cancelled because of the whole Disney merger. They also uh, were linked to Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and what was unfolding was effectively going to be a connected universe between those two. But again, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, a really good Avengers cartoon, was shit-canned in favour of Avengers Assemble, a really dull, very flat Avengers cartoon with animation less good than Pride of the X-Men. 
with these lifeless versions of the characters. And they cancelled Spectacular Spider-Man, replacing it instead with Ultimate Spider-Man, which was asinine. It's like they were going out of their way to murder the best shows and to replace them with these pod people. So the one-season mono-series, Wolverine and the X-Men, is worth watching, if you can find it, on DVD and in America on Blu-ray. But it's not on Disney+. Plus. I looked for it on Just Watch, and they went, uh, no, we don't have Wolverine and the X-Men. We've got the Wolverine movies, the X-Men movies. We got Sex and the City. Do you want that? No. You, Me, and the Apocalypse? Beauty and the Beast? Look, if you're gonna name everything with an and, though, we are gonna be here all day, I know. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Harley and the Davidsons. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Pride of the X-Men. Oh, apparently if you're American, it is on Disney+. Plus. Well, there you go, there's your homework, folks. It's good stuff, no one ever talks about it. It feels like I'm doing anything to avoid talking about the 1992 series of X-Men, but really, it's because this is the benchmark. This is the X-Men to so many people. And I would not be surprised if they riff on it when Marvel finally unveiled them in new movies. Bringing back X-Men in the 97 series, whether it's good or bad, was showing their hand either way. So that's good, that's worth seeing. This version of Wolverine is the caricature and the sort of like the, the patient zero of what the bad boys are all based on. Will now starts screaming with laughter whenever they see on TV someone who's supposed to be the lancer of the group, the bad boy, say, give me a break. It's a very 80s, early 90s thing to say, but they noticed that uh, Eric did it in Dungeons and Dragons, Raphael does it, uh, every episode of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, give me a break, he literally says it in the titles, and Wolverine said it here. It's just this unifying phrase, and Wolverine is always on his last straw. He's always just ready to fight with anyone. And he's very entertaining, and I think the fact that they began to take him down a little bit and just sort of like, just dial it back, make him more human, was a good way of taking that character. Because if he starts off ridiculous, and then you start to see the human beneath the beast, mm. that's a good path. As opposed to the other way round, where he just becomes more and more of an asshole, like Thor. Indeed. Well, the, I think the fact that he is hanging out with a family, he is hanging out with a group of normal, regular, everyday people who shop regular, and regular. cook. And do things that don't involve being a hyped-up, traumatised soldier, which is where he comes from. Yeah. Rather than having the focus go, well, let's go and explore that, and now he's surrounded by people who are just as bad as he is. No, let's not. Let's see him being modified in the other direction. <laughs> but he, he, like, he storms off a lot whenever people don't agree with him. He fights with Cyclops all the time. And the fights are always very one-sided for us as an audience because they never really make the point that Scott was right. Mm, indeed. The writing does not give Scott the ability to be the one who's actually sensible at this yeah. point. But he does... He's like, don't go running in. And we're like, do go running in. It's fun to see Logan throw himself into the cannon fire. But eventually there does... It's it's subtle, but there is kind of a, a grudging shift in respect in Wolverine, and he stops being quite so anti-cyclops. Mm. Which, again, runs with the uh, the comics. Yeah, but but it does kind of feel a bit like, you're not my dad! No, I know, you're like 80 years older than I am. They didn't know that at the time, but he did <laughs> no, turn out to be 80 years older, yeah. yeah. Notably, in the uh, 2010 series Wolverine and the X-Men, 
Cyclops was the Lancer. Cyclops was the one arguing with Wolverine, who effectively was leading the group and trying to do his best. So suddenly you've got this guy who you've only ever seen trying to do the right thing, but being a stick in the mud about it. Now he's going, I'm going to go off on my own, start some shit, because Jean has disappeared and he's kind of nothing without her. Mm. This version of Scott is much more the, the the classic kind of, Logan, you will fall into line. Like, kind of Ed Exley in uh, LA Confidential. I thought originally that Guy Pearce would have made a really great uh, Scott, and a younger version of him absolutely would have. Mm, certainly would have done it better than James Marsden. <laughs> mm. But James Marsden was given no... No, he no Nothing of quality nothing to chew to through. Nothing to work There's also Gambit that we mentioned earlier. <laughs> This may as well be the Gambit show if it's if it wasn't the Wolverine show. I cannot express to people now why this sleazebag was so popular. Neither can with I. With all I, genders. I cannot justify this at all. He's so ridiculous. Way. But he was. He was adored. He's like, I don't know why. He's like Ray the Firefly from uh, The Princess and the Frog, but horny all the time. <laughs> He's younger than Ray has played. I mean, I joked to you the other day about why did nobody ever suggest Wilford Brimley as casting, but... God damn all. Good. <laughs> Good moonshine make Jackrabbit slap the bear. Yes, that is entirely what it sounded like. Oh, yeah. my God. But he's like, Gambit like to play, Cher. And uh, he talks about himself in the third person all the time. Yes. He has kind of a... like. He flirts with everybody. He's he's kind of a... How do I describe him? He's a bad boy, but he's not too bad. He's a thief, but he doesn't steal things from people that we care about that much. He seems to have a lot of bad shit in his past, but he's trying to get away from it. Yeah. He's he untrustworthy, but he almost doesn't want people to trust him so that he won't let them down. Yeah, he does also kind of, kind of, have a bit of... Subtle by energy before by energy was really a thing, mm-hmm. which is why having Channing Tatum play him would have been a really good would've idea. Been good, but yeah. under Fox, that would have been a crap movie. Mm. And nowadays, he's too old. It's not like he's trying to charm everything in a skirt or a skin tight leotard. Um, what leotards aren't skin tight? Good question. He has the hots for Rogue from Jump Street. They, they, they've both been on the team for a while already. And he flirts with her all the time. He wants to kiss her, but she can't be touched because she'll immediately absorb your powers, but also knock you out. And as opposed to the rogue in, played by Anna Packin, where it's like, you'll be out for a few minutes uh, and she'll steal your powers for a few minutes. This version of rogue can really fuck you up. Mm-hmm. She uh, is sitting on a lot of anxiety and grief over what ha- she was thrown out of the house by her horribly abusive father. There's some really neat juxtaposition in that episode. I don't know whether it was intentional. Her father is a stereotypical redneck and he's wearing a trucker's cap with the American flag on it when he's like, you know, a daughter of mine and she's cowering in the corner while he's, you know, bearing down on her, which is ironic since the rogue we know is imbued with a huge amount of physical strength and uh, would never have to cower from this man. But ultimately, symbolically and figuratively, Mm. she doesn't have that yet. But also, even though she could take him out by just touching him, she's afraid of him, she's afraid of herself. Mm. It's a really horrible, overbearing scene and it's illustrative of this is what happens when parents will not accept what you are. And it also, it it emphasises that sense of parents being terrified of what their children will become Mm. and 
overcompensating for that by clamping down on said children mm. and attempting to crush them. So this stereotype is representative of one of the worst sides of America, the kind that would cast out their own child if they, for example, had became pregnant suddenly uh, or turned out to be gay or started dating somebody of colour. It just it's, it's just awful parent. And Rogue goes to find consolation in the present day on top of the Statue of Liberty. And again, I, I don't know if this was intentional, but these are two images, two symbols for America. You've got the, you know, the patriotism and getting behind the flag and rah, 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 this is America and it's my America and don't you dare, dare say anything about my America or my flag or my guns, I will fucking kill you. Versus liberty, give me your tired, your uh, huddled oh, masses. Yeah. We like, welcome you to America, the what America could be. Like I said, I've been bemoaning the fact that the X-Men films never really seem to hone in on the, the mutants are loathed and feared. The first few did a bit. The third one, directed by McGee. Is it directed by McGee? I have no idea. The third one, directed by Brett Ratner, problematic shithead that he is, The Last Stand, pretty much puts a bow on it and says, it, that's the one where Rogue at the end either goes to get the cure and is cured, which is actually a storyline from uh, this season, this first season, or doesn't get the cure. They had shot both ending brief scenes between her and Bobby and saw which the test audiences liked. They weren't telling a story. They just wanted to appeal to whatever the most people wanted to see. It didn't matter what Rogue's decision was to them because the story didn't mean anything. And this is what, this is what frustrates me so much about the waste of this world giving it to Fox, who gave it to so many piece of shit dudes. And there's a bit with the Statue of Liberty. In, in the first one. In the first one, isn't there, yeah. And it's sort of like... They're using well, it as a weapon. Brian Singer never met, never met a subtext he couldn't pretty much announce, but... Uh, and then piss on. Yeah. I'll take these. You must like to play cards. I like solitaire, okay? Unless I got someone to play with. They feel great, I... Like anything else? Don't go away. I'll be right back. One of the bigger issues I have always had is, and we'll jump to Magneto at this point, when the debate comes up, what should the MCU do with Magneto now? So many people, including I think Nando of Nando V Movies, were like, no, no, he absolutely still has to be connected with the concentration camps and the Nazis. This infuriates me because this shit has been happening before the Nazis for a long, long time and then after the Nazis for a long, long time. For the purposes of his character throughout the 20th century, the Magneto symbol could be connected with this past atrocity so that he could gesture organically as someone who has lived many, many decades through the 20th century and seen this terrible thing subside and then nowadays start to build back up again. But now he'd have to be 110 years old or so. And people have said, in all rationality, we'll just have him get frozen like Captain America. No, because then that's a man out of time who's pointing back at something that has now passed beyond living memory and going, remember when this happened? There's this atrocity that we are capable of atrocity. No, we're capable of atrocity now. We're doing it now. We've been doing it for decades. 
the version of Magneto in this, they never directly say that he's from Poland. They never directly say that his surname is Lensha. They, they, his name is changed to uh, one of his pseudonyms, which is Magnus, rather than Eric. And it shows that his country was war-torn, but the implication seems to be that it was maybe in the 60s or 70s rather than the 40s. Not that it particularly matters, because it could just be the Nazis. But because they're non-specific about it, much like the mutant allegory, it is applicable to all kinds of atrocity that we are capable of. The Academy consistently bring us back to World War II and then go, see, this is the worst that we can do, and luckily it was, it was this time, and we beat it with the power of unity. And in fact, we're going to give more awards to this person who made this film that said Nazism was a tragedy and was terrible. Thankfully, it's now out of living memory. The KKK are Nazis. Their impulses for white supremacy come from exactly the same scared, shitty, bully place. Whereas Black Klansman that says, yo, Nazism? Happening right now. This motherfucker is friends with Trump, the head of the KKK. David Duke, completely ignored by the Oscars. They want to hold up a mirror to America then, not America now. They still want to be popular. And actually, like, something like American History X actually deals with skinheads and Nazis, and it's a fucking horrible film directed by a complete asshole. But I wish more people would make more challenging stuff about shit like that now that the folks who are very comfortable thinking about this stuff in past terms can't look away from. So if you make Magneto someone who was in a concentration camp and shouldn't be alive today, you're just doing what Brian Singer did for 20 years by having the camera linger on those numbers on his arm. Which, by the way, he stole from Monster Squad. The forgotten Goonies copycat thing written by Shane Black and Fred Deckard who... There was an old Jewish man on the, uh, the street and the kids were afraid of him, but then he says something like, I know a thing or two about monsters. And then the camera just sort of glances at his arm and it's a haunting look. But the moment you go to Auschwitz and have Psylocke standing there in sexy lingerie, you lose the right to invoke the Nazis and what they did, Brian. That doesn't mean we should not be able to refer back to it. I am absolutely all for the evocation of the Nazis. But whatever this Magneto is, has to be someone who has experienced this stuff just now. And it has to be something that feels like it's happening now. Not that it happened so long ago that it isn't affecting people. It's only affecting this one relic of the past. It would be frankly catastrophic to your point to just cling to this one side of who Magneto is. And they do it really well in this. There's, there's, uh, you pointed out that to, to make Eric, to, to make Magnus see what he's doing, Charles, in a way that would be very unethical for a therapist to do, jumps into his brain, forces him to regress back to childhood to witness something incredibly dark happening in his home country. We don't get to see it, but the voice actor freaks out over how horrible it is. We get brief flashes of children being chased yeah. and houses being burned and, and things like that. But it's I think what, what got me about that moment was that Charles does it not as an attempt to switch Eric's perspective, mm. or Magnus's perspective, but simply to stop him doing the thing he's mm. doing. He uses it like a stick. Yeah. I am absolutely all for referring back to the Nazis over and over again 
to prevent the, that shit from re-arising. The fact that they keep referring back to the Nazis again and again and again, and white supremacy has risen in America, means that's not working. When you know we've been hurt, been down before. Nigga, when our pride was low, looking at the world like, where do we go? Nigga, and we hate poor poor, wanna kill us dead in the street for sure. Nigga, I'm at the preacher's door, my knees getting weak and my gun might blow, but we gon' be alright. have to do it now. You have to show it now. You have to show the Rwandan genocide. You have to show Albania. Disney won't. I don't trust Disney to do that now. I would have done it a year ago. I don't now. I don't think they will do something this brave. I don't think they'll be as brave as they were in the early 90s with X-Men 92 the cartoon where the whole premise was, this is leading to death camps. This is leading to a Terminator-style Days of Future Past where there's graves of the X-Men, of everyone who's been executed. And Bishop, as this sort of time-jumping character, his job is, and by the way, the soundtrack goes with this harmonica where he's like, I bring people to death camps. And he's got like Wolverine in captivity on his flying car. And it's like, this is so fucking dark. What's with the harmonica? <laughs> but you're heading to a mutant termination center. And the Sentinels there don't care who you know. Why can't you rebels stop attacking those bucket heads? All it gets you is termination. Wake up, rookie. The Sentinels want to kill all mutants. Just you rebels, old man. They treat the rest of us just fine. It makes no bones about the fact of where this is going to take us. When I recently reread Age of Apocalypse a few years ago, I was really impressed by that same kind of bleak Nazi imagery that was threaded through that. That's the one where Magneto leads the X-Men because he doesn't want what happened before to happen again. It was the mid-90s, so he can still be that man. There's death camps, there's death factories. Apocalypse's adopted son is literally called Holocaust, something so upsetting and offensive they couldn't even call the action figure Holocaust. They had to call him Dark Nemesis because it, it's un, it's unthinkable. But this kid's comic absolutely said, this is what lies at the end of prejudice, when we separate each other from each other, when conflicts escalate to violence. The violence doesn't then escalate to accords. It doesn't escalate to being able to find some kind of compromise. The violence will only keep escalating to eye for an eye, head for a head, body for a body, family for a family, town for a town. It just, it's cyclical. I think the most admirable thing about uh, X-Men 92 is that they never let you forget that. It's never just like villain of the week, here's the juggernaut. And then he turns up and they have a fight with Colossus and then another one, villain of the week, I don't know, Toad. And then villain of the week. and. That does happen, but those stories all feed into this overarching theme of yeah. the bigotry is underpinning all of this. They, the, the the resentment yeah. of society is what causes all this to happen. Yeah, even in the Juggernaut episodes, the um, just, they still cut to the uh, the news to show what's happening, and, and Beast gets arrested after their first mission. Morph gets killed by a Sentinel and comes back later as a Revenant and. Hank languishes in jail for most of season one. 
which actually serves two purposes. One, his power set is he's quite acrobatic. So's Gambit, so's Wolverine, so's Storm, so's Rogue. Uh, and he's blue and furry and can say pithy things. But specifically, you've put your most eloquent person in prison and he doesn't try to get out. He is on trial and he wants to be able to speak publicly about the mutants. That's a film. Like, that in itself is a subtext of a film. Hank never got to do that in any of the movies. Mm. It really allows us to be able to, to get a mouthpiece for mutant affairs right out there by, by having Beast going, I can't hide this shit. I'm blue. I'm massive. I have huge feet and hands. I've got claws. But I can also speak like this. And I can also quote Shakespeare and D Dylan Thomas and Tennyson. And I'm just like you. The premise is that mutants are humans. Even the uh, Senator Kelly, who, by the way, in that shit-ass first X-Men film, just turns into a blob of water and disappears. In this, actually gets talked round to the idea that, hey, you know what? Mutants are humans first, mm. and mutants second. Yeah. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the quote McCoy uses in his court appearance is, in its original form, referring to Jewish people. Yeah. Magneto, I presume? Come, we must hurry. Your solicitude is appreciated, I assure you. I regret, however, that... What are you waiting for? My day in court, actually. Professor Xavier and I feel... Xavier? Charles Xavier had you break into the mutant control agency? Reluctantly, I assure you. And he would leave you to rot in prison? Not at all. My trial serves a purpose. It shall prove my innocence and the righteousness of our cause. What chance does a mutant have tried by normal humans? Are these the people whose laws you trust? They don't seem to share your sense of brotherhood. They only fight because they fear us. Because they don't yet understand. They do understand. Our mutant powers make us superior. That is why they fear us. That is why I must stand trial. They must see that we are not a threat to mankind, but are a part of it. Most notably, for comparing uh, between uh, film and uh, TV show, I, this does sound like I'm just ragging on the X-Men movies, but ultimately they disappointed the hell out of me for years and years and years. So going back to something which is doing the opposite, it's worthy of comparison. But it also tracks what they did and didn't say with those live-action movies. William Stryker is a character from Chris Claremont's God Loves, Man Kills from the early 80s, one of the first, like, serious, grown-up Marvel graphic novels. They released it as kind of an Elseworlds, or not necessarily tied in with continuity. He's a reverend, and he is very ashamed of his son, who's a mutant, and uh, he uh, is out to destroy them all. In the Brian Singer movies, William Stryker is the guy who headed up the Weapon X program, and he's really interested in Wolverine's juice. He is emblematic of how so many of those movies are about the Weapon X program trying to get Wolverine back so they can have their own special super soldier. The mutants are must be purged from the Earth side of Stryker is not there. They changed the character completely and just gave him the name of someone who would be quite troubling and problematic. Because if you had Christian imagery of this pastor standing up and fire and brimstoning mutants, you've then got to answer to a lot of middle America who'd say, that's not my God. And then they're going to get really angry with you and threaten to shoot you. It would be challenging to get the kind of Westboro Baptist Church view on mutants because to them, homosexuality is a choice and a sin. 
but the mutants are born dangerous. So that's kind of like saying God made a mistake. And they'll tie themselves in knots trying to avoid the sticky matter of evolution. Then again, since when has pointing out how illogical super right-wing evangelicals arguments actually are ever changed their minds, made them see sense. If they want to dehumanize someone, they'll pretend Jesus told them personally that what they have to say is a-okay. Even though the Jesus in question would be like, you know nothing of my work. So we've done Jubilee, we've done Wolverine, we've done Gambit, kind of. I mean, there's no uh, end to Gambit in this first season, but he does get to uh, uh, diversify himself uh, later on and becomes a bit less, uh, maybe a bit less creepy. Again, he's only really trying to sleaze up to Rogue. He wants to kiss her, but it's kind of more of a... It's like he's set himself this impossible task rather than just being a pussyhound and just yeah. shagging everything that moves. Because by God, in the 90s, hanging around the X-Mansion, looking like him, all you'd really have to do is bide your time. Mm. <laughs> I, I mean, ultimately, it's there's, there is a parallel narrative for the two of them whereby... Notably, sorry, side note... That was the era when there weren't any kids in the mansion apart from Jubes. Mm. So it's it's all adults and my God, the amount of swimsuit issues we got. Indeed. But they, they do, Rogue and Gambit have this sort of parallel narrative that reached its inevitable conclusion in the comics. It's, it is quite stereotypical, but he struggles with emotional contact. She struggles with physical contact. Yeah. And the idea is, hey, they might be able to help each other get past that thing. Yeah. It's It's... Actually quite sweet. It's weirdly wholesome. It doesn't really necessarily work now because people would be like, and, and rightly so, this guy's a total sleazebag. Yeah, indeed. But, Issue 45 of the X-Men run, one of my favourites. Yeah, there's that the one with the fold-out red cover where yes. they're like, yeah. Yeah, it is not them finally getting together, weirdly. It is the aftermath of that. Yeah. Uh, there's also the wonderful Storm, who I think actually... Especially relative to how fucking awfully Storm was treated in the uh, movies, wherein they never even got to know her name. The general audiences still don't know what Storm's name is. Again, that bit that bothers the hell out of me. Logan talking to James Howlett, Logan, talking to uh, uh, Charles Xavier saying, in a few years' time, you're going to get some new students. Scott, Jean, Storm. Her name isn't Storm. It's Aurora Monroe, but you know that you never made that point. In your shit-ass movies. Um, Storm in this gets to be this African goddess. She gets to have phenomenal powers. Like, she's the most powerful of all of them, but she has all this presence. And she speaks kind of uh, in, in a slightly inhuman or, or, or not exactly relatable way. Almost the way that Thor did in the comics for the longest time. Like, I verily... It all kind of plays into the idea that she's kind of more than human. She's this, like, she was worshipped as a goddess for a good reason. And she has this presence to her. And they, they play on the, uh, <laughs> they play on her claustrophobia several times. They point out that uh, in, there's a Shadow King episode later on that she began as a street thief who was recruited by basically an evil Fagin. And that's how Gambit found her in the comics. She was trying to pick his pocket. Um, in fact, I think, in the comics, she had been reverted to the uh, a kid, yeah. and so then she became older uh, um, when they when they reaged her. But uh, it, it, it gets very complicated. <laughs> but yeah, 
a house collapsed on her, I think killing her parents, and so she has developed pathological claustrophobia. And they it's a nice way of illustrating that although she has this phenomenal power, she's also just a little thing like being boxed in can can be absolutely terrifying to her. But there is one point where like a huge rock slide falls under her onto her, like that would kill a normal person. And Jubilee comments something along the lines of Oh Scott. And Scott says, Oh no, she's claustrophobic. And it's like, yeah, that's not really all that Willow pointed out, that's not really all that important when she's been crushed to death by rocks. Oh, she'll be having a bad time under there. It's like, oh, you stabbed me. I'm allergic to metal. It, it, it brings me out in a rash. I can't wear anything other than copper bracelets. Come with me, child. I shall explain who we are. All of us here are mutants, like yourself. Well, tell me this. What is a mutant? No one knows who will be a mutant at birth. We discover our extraordinary powers at about your age. Professor Xavier is our leader. And he has named us the X-Men. Don't worry, you are safe here. Because I can control the weather, they call me Storm. At least your name makes sense. My name's Jubilee. I blow stuff up. You've come to the right place. This is Professor Xavier's School for the Gifted. Gifted, huh? I getcha. That's a nice way of saying mutants, weirdos, like me. Like all of us. Aren't you guys a little old for school, or did you all get held back? We X-Men learned something very special here, Jubilee. How to control our mutant powers for the benefit of mankind. All right, already! But then why do people hate us? People fear what they do not understand. Also, Storm. I summon the Arctic winds! Rain! Wind! Lightning! Rain! Lightning! Thunder! And then there's Jean. Now, Jean's really important to you, to the point where you were screaming on the, um... <laughs> the, dark, the, the Dark Phoenix movie yeah. episode. So, uh, mm. how is Jean handled to you in this show? Because it's probably the most we saw of Jean. Who, by the way... In the comics, was known as Marvel Girl. Yes, originally. Then there was the Dark Phoenix saga, mm-hmm. and if eventually at the end of that, Jean Grey left the X Men. Then she came back, and she was kind of more of a "I will help the X Men," but she called herself just Jean Grey. Yeah. And then later on, she reabsorbed the Phoenix Force and referred to herself as Phoenix. But that was, I think, after uh, the first few films started coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is. When she's introduced, it's like Cyclops, Beast, Gambit, Wolverine, Storm, Jean Grey, Rogue. Why is she just called Jean Grey? Mm. Because you don't have all that context. She hasn't even had the Phoenix thing happen to her. She should really be called Marvel Girl. Technically, yes, she should. But she didn't use Marvel Girl for a long time in the comics, like way before this was going on. What did she call herself? She's just Jean Just Grey. call me Jean. Yeah, she's just Jean Grey in the comics for a It for the makes her time. seem like she's not a, t- a student okay. so much as a teacher's assistant. Yes. The, Jean, can you help me with this homework? If, if you want a basic summing up of who Jean Grey is, particularly in this first season yeah. of the cartoon, she is Deanna Troy. Yeah. That is pretty much the character. I sense he is distressed. <laughs> She's the one who, like, 
I, I said to you, Beast comes up with these incredibly emotionally intelligent and logical observations of yeah. why people's motivations might be what they are. This, by the way, was the first time I really saw how emotionally intelligent Hank is, as well as being book smart. Mm, indeed. Gene goes right to the source of, I'm sensing such and such an emotional response from... So like that, uh, there's a woman who does that in Team America World Police. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And th- that is effectively what, what that trope comes from i suspect unless you can tell me acres of them before her Mm. but this is certainly one of the the first exposures to it i had yeah she's not much use she and honest trailers pointed this out she and scott are pretty much a symbiotic entity they need each other all the time they talk to each other all the time like scott won't talk with anyone else only with gene and gene barely talks to anyone else. they are den parents especially when charles is not there scott She doesn't really order people around, but I could imagine if Gambit and Wolverine were fighting, she'd be the one to step in and go, Gambit, Wolverine, stop fighting. And I think when I initially started watching the show... Which, by the way, makes her a party pooper if you're a kid reading a comic. But that's I was really liking that fight. That's so the stereotypical, here's the girl, she's the den mother, she's the one who's going to break everything up and make everybody share their toys, boo. So she's membership of the European Union. But when I first started watching the show, it was not Jean who really grabbed me, it was Rogue. Yeah. Rogue was the character that I really connected with from early on. Then once I got into the comics, and particularly when I started reading the back issues, and yes, the Phoenix Saga, that opened the character up in a way that I was I started looking for hints of what else is there underneath this what is there beneath what they're showing us now and as the series because Jean was a good girl and you were a good girl the big element of that yeah Jean was a good student and you were a good student Jean wanted to help people and you wanted to help people but then there was a dark side to her exactly so it's like okay this could be like Carrie if it didn't have a horrendously tragic ending which is ultimately how how Jean has often been shown. And it did have a horrendously tragic ending. They just affect, brought her back. Yeah. Mm. As it progressed, there was more of a sense of, well, what are they going to bring She murdered the, pe- the planet of the asparagus people. Yes, she did. <laughs> I don't know if she does that in the cartoon, but yeah. But but that, that when they did finally do the Phoenix Saga, which I think you said was like season three. Most of season three. three yeah. um, that started to add layers to this character who had always had this sense of there is more to this, you're just not showing mm. us it. Where is it and, and how are you going to bring that through? Rogue differs very greatly from uh, the version played by Anna Packin. She's like this, uh, like I said, Southern Belle. She's like sort of, I'm a lady. Mm. And uh, like the big white blossom of hair in the middle looks like she's got her roots are showing mm. or something like that. Yeah. It's... It's like she exists. She had two tone dye before two tone dye was really a thing. She exists as kind of like a stereotype of trailer trash, but she's so emotionally open mm. all the time. Yeah. She's you very can't help passionate. but feel for her. She's very enthusiastic. She's, she's also very moral. She doesn't like stealing or hurting people. Yeah, she hates the idea that her power can hurt people. And she has this ongoing and again it they, they introduce it pretty early and it's it's little flashes here and there that are building to something. Mm. That every time she absorbs a person's energy, whether that's for purposes of knocking out a guard so that they can get into a particular 
particular place or whether it happens by accident because somebody falls on her in a fight or whatever. She ends up with little shreds of that person locked in her head and unable to get rid of them. And there are moments when that starts to really affect her and impact on her. Yeah. And uh, notably in terms of power set, it shouldn't really matter, but it does definitely play into her character. Rogue in the movies played by Anna Packin never crossed paths with Carol Danvers. This version of Rogue in the comics, and they later go on to show in the uh, cartoon, did cross paths with Carol Danvers, used her powers to subdue her, and then mystique her adoptive mother, who's far more in it later, but she definitely still features in this first season, bade her hold on to Carol until basically Rogue has absorbed a hell of a lot of cosmic uh, power and is now invulnerable, relatively, can fly and can hit really hard. So she's, like, her being able to absorb other people's powers is almost a side uh, ability. She's the heavy hitter of the group. Yeah, yeah. The This was something that always appealed to me about the X-Men from Dot, was that the, the women of the group are their, their real top-end powerful characters in, in terms of what their actual abilities are. Also, to its credit, considering the amount of Sports Illustrated-looking swimsuit issues that Jim Lee and company just kept churning out in the 90s, where it's like, yes, we X-Men ladies are going to uh, go and uh, all, all stand by the pool and just sort of jump in and out and just be all dripping and, oh, look, my my it's quite cold out here, certainly in this uh, attire anyway. Um, they don't actually sexualize the women in this show. Like, I, I don't think, apart from Gambit's advances, which are always rebutted hard by Rogue. Mm. There was like one moment in, almost immediately after we had this conversation where Rogue was asleep. And the and camera, the camera roved up her body. body. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, guys. But that is like pretty much the, the one time. Yes, the costumes are very tight fitting. I mean, Rogue is basically painted naked. Yeah, but, but then Storm is head to foot in tight white leather. Yeah. Uh, Jean has a, a, a flesh-coloured bodysuit that stretches from neck to ankle, mm. and then this weird sort of black strappy design that goes up the front that makes it look like she's wearing a, a Borat-style mankini. <laughs> it's so weird. And a balaclava. But- so many fucking hot balaclavas with the hair out. In the 90s. Jim yeah. Lee loved them for some yeah. reason. But it is, it, it does kind of seem, and obviously a big part of this is because it was a cartoon for kids, but while the costumes are... Uh, I mean in comparison to, say, anything Bruce Tim did that we've already talked about, where yeah, all the no, girls totally. are pin-ups the, the, and definitely sexualized. The outfits are skin tight, but they're not often especially revealing, mm. unless they are specifically wearing a swimsuit because they're swimming. Mm. And they're not... The characters themselves are not sexualized in their behavior or the, the things, the storylines that they get involved in. Yeah. So that's, we've covered everyone on the main team. We've covered Magneto. Professor X actually is fairly bland in this first season. Like he doesn't do too much to, uh, to shake him feeling like a rock. He's very much a Captain Picard. It was kind of the perfect casting. Mm. I didn't realize until later in my life that Charles is a really good character if he's made compromises, if he's hidden things, if he's done bad stuff that he kind of wants to move under the rug so that he can continue being a good influence on everyone and trying to, for the greater good, compromise his ethics. Mm. It's kind of like uh, Al Pacino in Insomnia. 
It's like back in his past, he did something terrible, but everyone still respects him because it was hidden. And Ch potentially Charles could be a really great character to interrogate the qualities of moving forwards when he turns back up in the movies. Because the whole, like, uh, as we said, James McAvoy's uh, treatment of Gene is horrendous. And the movie does not criticize him for it. And around about the time that they're starting to say, you know what, Charles did a few things a little bit, uh, a little bit questionable in the Brett Ratner third film. He gets disintegrated, and then throughout Logan, he's just well, he got better. He's he's in just this period of mourning and looking back on what he's done while his mind falls apart. It's crucifying. Other characters uh, who turn up, we got Gyrink. Do you remember Gyrink in the uh, Henry Henry Gyrink in the uh, first X Men film? He was there. He's the one that Mystique said, "You're the reason why I was afraid to go to school." And then she murders him, snaps his neck. He he gets about a um, half a minute of screen time. He's really important for the Sentinel program. Is, I was just going to say, isn't he in charge of the whole Sentinel program? Trask and Gyrink together. Yeah. Like Gyrick is the um, the the government side of it, mm. the the business. Sorry, the business end of it. Who tr tries to get the government contracts? Yeah, but I mean, like, if you absolutely don't intend to do Sentinels in the future, then all by all means, kill Gyrick in the first thirty seconds of his appearance in the first X Men film. But I feel like you could have done that with anyone. anyone. The other thing is Mystique, who uh, we were explaining to Will because Will's only ever seen the movie version of Mystique. There is a very complicated relationship between her and a lot of adopted kids throughout the uh, X-Men chronology. In this case, we've got Rogue, uh, who was ef effectively kind of taken in by another Fagin. And uh, she, after being thrown out by her horrible father, she was welcomed into a sort of a, a ragtag family. And Mystique used her powers to uh, her own ends in order to do bad things, steal planes and shit. <laughs> uh, it's... She's instrumental to the uh, finale of the season where uh, it turns out that a lot of stuff was happening in the X-Men comics that they kind of tried to incorporate uh, in here. So the um, with Bishop turning up, they, they switched out what was originally Rachel Summers through the old middle-aged Kitty Pride back into her younger self. Kind of like... Um, almost exactly what happens with Wolverine in Days of Future Past, in the two-issue Days of Future Past, and they have to prevent an assassination that leads to this dark, sentinel-filled Terminator future. And then a few years later, James Cameron made The Terminator. But at the same time as X-Men 92 was being made, Bishop had just turned up in the comics, and he was from like 100 years in the future, actually after the Days of Future Past timeline. And, and just before this, James Cameron had made Terminator 2 Judgment Day, mm -hmm. and the X-Men went... Well, I'll we'll have, have that too. back. Yoink. <laughs> and so they kind of combined that version of Bishop to send him back to basically be a Terminator. But he ends up staggering around Westchester being like, I've got to kill someone. someone. And it's to do with the X-Men. Mm -hmm. And then as it turns out, it was Gambit was, a, uh, was the one who betrayed them. It actually is Mystique pretending to be Gambit so that she can pin it on him. But this relates to, uh, in Bishop's introduction in the comic, he found a garbled message from Jean Grey saying that the X-Men were betrayed and that Gambit's name was dropped. So for years, it was Gambit's going to betray the X-Men. As it turns out, uh, it was actually Charles. 
dun 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 and we actually get to see Jean make that garbled message and that was at the beginning of the Onslaught saga which made for a really great reveal and kind of exonerated Gambit but then Gambit got put on trial for <laughs> then his we found out he did a lot of other shit before I'm that. sorry I did a Morlock massacre like he assisted the uh marauders in finding the Morlocks and killing them all. The Morlocks are one of the most hard-done-by bunch of people in X-Men history. They really They're all of the mutants with the unsexy powers, like yeah. they can make bread come out of their eyes, or, or they can control flies or something. Or they don't have powers, but they look yeah. weird. Uh, in this cartoon, uh, they uh, kidnap... Who do they kidnap? Storm? Jubilee? Jean? Rogue. Let's say Jubilee. Scott. In this cartoon, they kidnap Scott, and uh, is it Callisto's like, now you'll be a very pretty bride for me, or something like that? Essentially, and then Storm goes in to Then Storm turns up, and then, again, uh, in an analogue for a comic uh, issue, she uh, challenges Callisto to single combat, and then eventually go like beats her, but then says, you need to be a good leader to these people, they need one. And... Yeah, it says like you know, I, I because I've won this fight, I lead the Morlocks, but I'm giving this responsibility to you, and that's a good way of Storm dealing with that. If you, I don't know if you remember in the film, uh, Halle Berry Storm fought Callisto and then threw her against a metal fence and threw so much electricity into her body with lightning that her lip stud grew red hot, and then she said a catchy pithy one liner and walked away. Directed by Brett Ratner. An absolutely that. repulsive film where Wolverine murders half the Morlocks with his knives. It's horrible. And it's Jean. horrendous. I loathe it. Mm. And yes, Gene. But yeah, Gyrick, as I mentioned earlier, and Trask are... Like, we keep going back to the Sentinel program. And in a big departure from things like Masters of the Universe and Thundercats and raccoons where it's like one bad guy gang we've got to get that masters of the universe we'll get them or star the the decepticons or cobra which was just throughout the 80s in this it's a much more global mutants are taking over we need to be the people who take them down and, and keep the people safe and it feels less like they're doing it as a crusade to keep people safe and more because they get a very cushy government contract for this p- paramilitary a, robot yeah, unit. There's a big element of that going on and that they use people's hate and fear in order to yeah. maintain their ability to retain power and get money and keep their position in society. Hmm. And mm, this thing gets more relevant by the minute. It does. Um, Also, just one point I want to make about the X-Men villains that pop up throughout these these episodes. You want to talk about some villain redemption arcs. Mm Fast and the Furious has nothing on this. Like, people will show up as the villain, but they're going to be mates at some point before the whole thing closes out. Yeah. Like, not just this show... X-Men generally, there's so many people involved, there can't not be side-hopping. Which is why you shouldn't murder Callisto with enough electricity to fry her skin. Mm. Keep her around. She might have a redemption arc. Indeed. And you also shouldn't be absolutely fine with murdering her. Uh, We also get to see Cable, because he was flavour of the month. He's like a a guerrilla um, fighter who's trying to liberate Genosha from... uh, it's, It's effectively a giant slave island where everyone wears collars. And uh, it's uh, it's horrendous. It, it, it's a, a, an example of governments immediately going, we have to control these people, these powers. They are a threat to any kind of stability we might be able to put together. Mm. Again, there's so much harsh imagery that could be used by Disney 
but they won't. Please prove me wrong. I don't think you will. There's also Warren, who hates being a mutant because he's got these great big wings, just like in that X-Men 3. I think the X-Men 3 is the most, like, it takes the most elements from uh, the cartoon, including the cure element, which is Warren wants to be cured of being a mutant, and uh, Rogue gets very tempted to mm, take this yeah. cure because she would be free of the uh, horrendous burden. Yeah. But it takes those elements and then it drops them on the floor and it gets them all the covered in dog fluff and all mixed up. Well, like I said, the, the film had no definitive ending because it had nothing to really say. Yeah, indeed. It had the hate, hating and fearing, but like it, it just wrapped it up in a neat bow and said, and that's the end of the X-Men trilogy. We hope you liked it. Tune in next time for the Wolverine-only movie where everyone tries to get his juice. Again. Again. But yeah, I would love to see Mystique as much more of a uh, an underground militant mutant rights activist who kind of has a magnetic force about her as well, isn't necessarily in with Magneto and draws kids who have been rejected by society to her. So rather than just being this smug spy that she was when she was played by Rebecca Romaine Stamos, mm. who, as it turns out in the Star Trek show Strange New Worlds, is a really great actress. She just needed the right script. Or this increasingly disinterested on her way to being something like a mutant activist, spy, espionage well, agent. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? What you're describing is all the stuff that Jennifer Lawrence was ostensibly doing off screen yeah. that we never got to see. Because, of course, she's also, in some versions of continuity, Nightcrawler's mother, which mm. isn't nothing. No. There was also tilting towards uh, that Nightcrawler's father might, in fact, have been Sabretooth. Yikes. It's also noteworthy that that most loathed of X-Men films, The Last Stand, also invoked the I'm the Juggernaut bitch meme. Which came from this. Yeah, it's the Juggernaut bitch! Yeah, Charles, I beat the shit out of you. Get off me, bitch. Who the fuck are you? Uh, fuck is wrong with you? I'm the Juggernaut bitch! Oh, you a motherfucker. I'm gonna whoop your ass. Silly bitch, your weapons cannot harm me. Don't you know who the fuck I am? I'm the Juggernaut! Hey! hey. Oh, yes, the you fuck you I'm gonna forget. Your mama doesn't Feel me, Charles. Shut the fuck up, Charles. Yeah, I'm gonna you beat your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Too fast, with you. You better run, Charles. Get that shit out of my face, bitch. Don't you know the fuck I am? Oh, she's fucking with my helmet. I got this shit in fourth grade. Oh, no! My face. Pimp smack your ass, bitch. You my hooker man. Now it's time for me to take my pride. I'm gonna rape you, bitch. You ready? You ready? You ready, huh, bitch? You ready, bitch? Shut the fuck up, Charles. Shut the fuck up, Charles. No! Charles, you got in my head. I'm the drug in my bitch. There's eight more minutes of it. The fact that this made it in suggests that the makers of X-Men 3 had nothing to say. Don't you know who I am? I'm the juggernaut, bitch! In this first season, we also get to meet Apocalypse, who is actually really well realised on screen. He's got a terrifying voice, and he seems, like, really... He doesn't gloat. He's just very sure of what he's going to do all the time. The camp one is Mr. Sinister, who doesn't turn up until season two. But, uh, frankly, he's camp but terrifying at the same time. I think the closest equivalent would be... 
Tim Curry's The Darkness in Legend. Yes, yes. I was just going to say Tim Curry playing Mr. Sinister. But oh my age, God, that would have worked. Been, yeah, would have really worked. Yeah, But yeah, I feel like the Age of Apocalypse and the, the renewed interest in his character occurred in the comics as a result of his show on screen here, where he had this kind of domineering, I'm going to reshape the world. Because he's all about survival of the fittest, he doesn't have Magnus's principles. But he steps on his own point. He is he's incredibly eugenics-y. Yeah. And he is fixated on the idea that the the mutant gene, the the perfect mutant DNA mm. comes from Gene Grey and Scott Summers. That's not survival of the fittest. Mm. That's not enabling the the uh, best elements from a variety of things to rise to the top. Mm. That's I want you. And you. And that's all I want to work with. For an apocalypse, you actually need someone more like with the voice of Idris Elba, but a CG creation who can grow and and shrink. And just this incredible voice. Beast, how many peoples have dreamed of my end? You are no closer than the Babylonians with their swords and fire sticks. I do think you're right. Elba could have done it well, especially having just seen 3,000 Years of Longing. Yeah. And then there's Master Mold, who's like this giant sentinel that makes little sentinels who are big to us. Uh, and he just kind of like takes these action figures out of his chest and puts these very Chris Claremont and puts them on the floor and goes... And, and they just they just adapted directly. They, di- they didn't really twist much of what was written in the adaptation of this, they just give you what's on the comic page, even if it's nonsense, which is kind of charming. It's it's actually worked really well for the MCU in the past. Too. Just rather than going, oh, we've got to make this like like with Mortal Kombat. How do we make this edgy. How about you don't? Not like with Street Fighter, where they're like, we can't just have a fighting contest where loads of people in colourful outfits from different places around the world turn up. There's got to be some sort of plot to do with Shadow Law taking over uh, at the, at Taiwan, Thailand, or something like that. And and no, they don't throw fireballs because you can't throw fireballs in real life. We're doing a documentary called The Street Fighter. And then what they replace it with is such juvenile crap. So it's like, why not just go crazy and have Ryu be able to throw fireballs? But yeah, Master Mold eventually decides, I'm going to save all of humanity from yourselves. And it's a very Skynet thing. It's like, if you you let AI work out how to solve human conflict, inevitably it will settle on, we'll just kill all of you. Easy. You've asked me to end conflict, and like Ultron, I think you're confusing peace with quiet. He would be terrifying, especially when his uh, creators are like, oh shit, what have we done? But then when he stands up to start wreaking his uh, havoc on the world, he takes two steps forwards, and there's a cable attached to his foot, and he goes, I am still plugged in, and I'm like, way to just pull the rug out from your terrifying major villain. What a farce. Yep. But I think that's the only misstep huh, in what is actually a really kind of cinematic finale for season one, where they're like, we've got to deal with this sentinel situation in the immediate. We obviously can't deal with it in the permanent, but we began with sentinels. We continued with these picketing people saying that, you know, mutants are going to kill us all. We had a lot of very ugly altercations where white American thug dudes are inches from destroying little helpless mutants like Jubilee. Bigotry, prejudice and exclusion are not enemies you can punch. 
If anything, the more powerful you are, the more you're going to scare humans. And the less powerful you are, the more vulnerable you will be to their knee-jerk violent retaliation. You've got Graydon Creed, uh, son of Sabretooth in the uh, comics, uh, this big, loud, shouty dude who likes to get loads of attention and is using the hate of these people to get a massive following and he's going to make America mutant free because they're going to take back the... Would you stop predicting the future, please? Would you stop with your Omega Red, your Graydon Creed and your fucking killer drones in your militarized <laughs> security firms it's it's paul verhovenish almost only it's not funny <laughs> i mean it is funny because you watch this thing moment to moment it's embarrassing the animation's crummy compared with something like say cora or cowboy bebop or batman the animated series which is so much more stylish and beautifully painted this is fugly and has connections to G.I. Joe that it can't seem to shake. But watching an episode or two doesn't compare with actually... Like, I'm not suggesting you do this. It's more just sort of, I am notifying you that this is a thing. If you sit down and watch loads of it, you realise that the, the bent of the creative team is to maintain this theme. It's not to just give you week-to-week -week stuff. They're all connected but they're building a world here that's very hostile. They're also building a conflict with no easy answers. And that's brave, ultimately. One of the absolute worst things about X-Men 3, shit as it was, is that it presented easy answers at the end and then hand-waved the future. It's repugnant. Because that's the thing. It's, it's about human nature. It's about our... Like, the X-Men are applicable to everything that has led people to be outcast. It's not just about uh, uh, racism in, this, in the uh, civil rights era. It's not just about homophobia in the 80s and 90s. It's not just about transphobia now. It's not just about anti-Semitism in the 1940s. It's all of these things. It's a side of human nature that is tribal, and divides itself into clubs and hierarchies and puts walls up and says, you on the other side of that wall, we hate you because it makes us feel more like we belong to this strong group. We're secure here and rather than extending hands, they extend bullets and knives and bats and bricks and hate speech. There's a part of people that wants to be cruel because it makes you feel safe in some strange way because if you're the one being cruel you're not the one having the cruelty inflicted upon them it's the part of humanity that i have been wrestling with for most of my life thanks to the x-men honestly so yeah i was surprised and delighted at how well as a whole this thing holds up it's goofy as shit at times it's very 90s but it somehow manages the seesaw of being very 90s, you know, malls and VHS recorders and no internet, and at the same time feeling horrendously applicable to where we are now. Because it was made by visionaries who were like, we can see where the end of this, what lies at the end of this particular chain of bigotry. You know, Jack Kirby fought in World War II and had particular distaste for Nazis, created Captain America, 
He was effectively handing a book to kids in the 60s and going, don't let this happen again. Which is why, for the 20th century, it was in fact really important to keep Eric Lenscher connected to that specific event. But now we're in the 21st century. We are in the third decade of the 21st century. If we don't recognize that this horrendous shit is in far too many of us right now and has been since we began and actually start evolving culturally in a way that allows us to anticipate that and deal with that as opposed to going, maybe we should give the Nazis a platform. No, absolutely not. It's not the same as taking away someone's freedom of speech, which is specifically a law put in place to prevent journalists from being sent to prison and disappeared for speaking out against the government. It's not the same as we've got to let Nazis talk to each other so that they can organize their hate mobs. That's like saying, maybe we should at least give the cancer time to grow. I mean, the cancer has as much right to live as we do. No, the, the, the cancer is that part of us that wants to be cruel. We have to not so much eliminate it, but recognize that it's there and how the fuck to deal with it. And I feel like X-Men is more relevant than it's ever been. So the... The fucking pressure is on for Marvel to deliver something that is even vaguely going to live up to this weight of responsibility. Now, to play us out, I did want to play some of the music from this animated show by Ron Wasserman, Noam Keneal, Amots Plesner, and the legendary Shuki Levy. However, most of it is unrecoverable. Then I thought I'd be clever and went to what was the number one American chart hit in October of 1992 when this animated series first aired. And it was Boys to Men, End of the Road. And I listened back to it. It doesn't fit with X-Men, even if it does put you back in that time. But you can go listen to it if you want. What I did eventually decide on, uh, you've already heard a little bit of. And that is the 1994 Capcom fighting game, X-Men Children of the Atom, which utilized the voices of many of the X-Men animated series cast. It's this absolutely badass Street Fighter type game, but the first one that allowed you to leap really, really high into the air like Shonen Jump. What followed over the next few years were Marvel Superheroes, X-Men vs. Street Fighter, Marvel Superheroes vs. Street Fighter, Marvel vs. Capcom, Marvel vs. Capcom 2, nothing for a long time, then Marvel vs. Capcom 3 and Infinite. It's due for a revisit, preferably in this beautiful pixel art 2D style. Unfortunately, now you can't buy it because the last time it was available was on Sega Saturn in 1996. I suppose you might be able to find an arcade unit of it. Or you could try emulation. I wouldn't know anything about that, but it looks fantastic on YouTube. So School of Movies and School of Everything Else are funded by Patreon. We don't advertise. This is how we pay the bills and afford groceries. And our top tier sponsors get credit every episode. So thank you too. Oh no, I'm condemning myself to doing Wolverine. I've got a sore throat right now. I'll see how long I last. Aaron Burns. Oh, one. One name. Ow. Ow. Hello to Aaron Burns. You're brand new. Hello. Aaron LeCluse. Oh, oh, I can't do it. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, Maybe I'll sound like Charles Xavier.
Aaron Lecluse. Abel Savard. Why is he Liam Neeson? Abel Savard. Or perhaps I'll be Hank McCoy, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer. Yeah, I could do this all day. He's got a lovely soft voice. Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler. Maybe I'll do the Steve Blum version of uh, Wolverine from Wolverine and the X-Men. Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Selgero. I just sound like I'm on from Cora. Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clausen, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Haskell, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas-Hayo, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esman. And last thing before we go, every time Jean experiences some kind of psychic flare-up, she makes sex noises, like real, proper, oh, this is doing stuff to me, sex noises. Something was awakened while I watched this. I don't know. Hmm. And we will be back next week with Star Wars, talking about something you might not expect. first tune you heard was Cyclops in the Danger Room. Second was Omega Red in the Deep. That one just there was Storm on the Blackbird. And coming up we got Bobby Drake with Ice on the Beach.
This is the Silver Samurai in Madripoor. And coming up after him, we have my absolute favourite from this game. This is the criminally undervalued Psylocke, Betsy Braddock, straight out of England, but with a Japanese assassin's body. Yeah, that's a storyline they probably shouldn't do. Just have her be a Japanese girl who was raised in England on a beautiful moonlit night for a psychic ninja. <laughs> 